Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by TaylorMade Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, Golf Pride, Two Under, Zexio, Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, Making the Game More Fun, Bionic Gloves, and the McLemore Club. Experience life above the clouds. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good morning, folks, and thank you for joining me here on a special edition of Next on the T. And welcome to Masters Week. It is my favorite week of the year, my favorite golf tournament ever. Boy, I just, I just love everything about the Masters and Augusta National. I've had the privilege of being on the grounds, except for obviously the last couple of years with COVID, but every year since 2001, and it is my favorite place on the planet. If you said, hey, Chris, I'll pick you up and set you down anywhere on the planet, where would you like to go? I'd say Augusta National every single time. And as a component of Masters Week, I've had the privilege of sitting down with Mr. Gary Player uh, eight years in a row now, and uh, usually on the Saturday prior to Masters Week. And this year, I had the privilege of doing it again. So I sat down with him this weekend and uh, had a wonderful conversation. Always a privilege to get to spend time with Mr. Player. The following is that conversation. So as always, folks, sit back, relax. Let us take your mind off everything else going on in your life. For a little bit, this is my conversation with the wonderful Mr. Gary Player. All right, now back in making his ninth appearance with me here on Next on the T is Mr. Gary Player. I've had the wonderful privilege of having him join me on the Saturday prior to the Masters now eight times. You all know about Mr. Player's wonderful career, nine major championships on the PGA Tour, three Masters, three Open Championships, two PGA Championships, and one U.S. Open, won nine more majors over on the Champions Tour. He was the third player to win the modern-day career Grand Slam at the age of 29. Came after Ben Hogan and Gene Sarazen. Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods would later join him. As a golf architect, he has over 325 design projects on five continents. He's authored or co-authored 36 books. He played in 52 consecutive Masters tournaments, which is a record. At the age of 80, he made a hole-in-one in the Masters Par 3 contest. His fourth ace in that event, which is also a Masters record. And I'm very honored he is back with me again today here on Next on the T. Good morning, Mr. Player. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Well, what a pleasure. You've been a big supporter of ours, and I appreciate it very much. Well, that means a great deal to me, as do you, Mr. Player. Thank you so much for that. I want to start off our time today by talking about some of your master's memories. And I'm curious, when you get on property and you go into the clubhouse, do you walk over, get into the champion's locker room. Do you feel the presence of your old friends? You see Mr. Palmer's locker and the lockers of some of your old friends. Do you feel like it's sort of you guys are back together again and it's an opportunity for you to say hello to all of those old friends? Absolutely. And, of course, I'm a great believer in that. It's the same as I believe when you die, you know, your your your, your meat, your your body dies but not your soul, and you go on to heaven. And I believe I'll be seeing guys like Arnold Palmer again. And I tease people, I say, you know, I sent Arnold an SMS the other day and said, listen, you know, I'm in the twilight of my life. 
the sun is setting. Make sure you've got a good golf course up there. Make sure it's a Gary Player design course. Wham comes <laughs> back and says, no, it's an Arnold Palmer design course. And I said, now, maybe I'll convince you, seeing that I'm outliving you guys, and I can still play well, and you guys couldn't at my age, to build and make sure you've got a good gym there. Maybe you'll be convinced now you've got to do weight training. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. So I do. I go to the locker room. And, you know, one of the things with, with me, Chris, uh, having been a poor boy, you know, I have a lot of gratitude in my heart. And uh, when I go in the locker room, I always say a little prayer of thanks. I say a little prayer of thanks every single night of my life. I never miss a night. Thank you for being in this greatest country in the world. Thank you for the talent you loaned me. Thank you for my family, my health. You know, you've got so much to be thankful for. The trouble with people in America, they don't know how lucky they are. I continuously hear a lot of these students saying what a bad country this is. Well, I'd like them just to go to a lot of other countries for one week. That's all. You look at these athletes making all this enormous sums of money, how lucky we are. Go to another country and see if you can make that kind of money. You know, people just don't realize. I think people, they have a great sense of entitlement in America, and they are actually very naive about the rest of the world. You know, our students in South Africa at university are far more aware of what's happening around the world uh, with a lot of these uh, socialist countries, whereas your students uh, really are pretty naive as far as that's concerned, and yet they go to the great universities like Princeton and Yale and, uh, you know, and all these great universities. So there's a lot to be thankful for if you're in America. Please believe me. And Mr. Player, t talking about the young folks here in the country and, and really more about the young players out on tour, did, did they seek you out when you get up to Augusta National to not only just play a practice round with you and to pick your brain? about strategy and that sort of thing. But are they interested to hear about, you know, what it was like when, you know, when you won in 61 and you hit it here in 74 and you shot the 17 in 74 and, and playing up 18 and all that. Do they Are they looking to try to hear those stories? Not at all, which is surprising to me because I was the opposite to the young players of today. I, If I could have spoken to Ben Hogan or Sam Snead and learned just one thing, it could have been a tremendous advantage to me. In fact, one of the reasons I won 18 major championships was because I asked Ben Hogan a question, and he didn't speak much to many people, and he gave me some fantastic advice. But you know what's very interesting to me today? And look, everybody has their choice. And so I don't criticize anybody for not asking for advice. But it's silly because experience is such a big thing in this world. And I see players on the tour today. They are playing reasonably well, but they should be excelling. And I see there's one particular player on the tour. I see four faults in his swing. And yet nobody's able, nobody's telling him this. And if they did, he'd be definitely continuously five of the best players in the world. And he just goes on and on and on and doesn't get much better. But, you know, you can't volunteer because they don't ask you. 
I don't know what it is. They'll go to coaches that can't break 85. Uh, look at him. Here's the best example ever. Tiger Woods was potentially the best player that ever lived. His record, I don't think he'll equal Jack Nicklaus's record. Maybe he will. I hope he does because it's so great for golf. And Tiger Woods moved the needle. And I'd love to see him get better and come back and play and win major championships if that's possible. But uh, what amazes me is that when we were young, we, we seeked out. We seeked out knowledge. We seeked out knowledge to try and be better. Now, young guys today, they'll go to coaches. This is what fascinates me. Tiger Woods, he wins the U.S. Open by 15 shots. 15, not five. And the next week, he's having a lesson. Can you believe it? Now, here's a big if. I've just done a, a podcast story about if. Ifs don't mean a thing in life. Now, if Tiger Woods had never gone for a lesson after winning the US Open, he would have won at least 20 majors, at least, maybe more. He made a dreadful mistake in going along and having lessons. Uh, as much as I admire the two coaches, they weren't the coaches for Tiger. They weren't in the arena. They'd never been in the arena to understand what it is to build a golf swing that works under pressure. It's all really well giving the theory, but if, if you haven't been in the arena, how can you know what sort of swing is going to work under pressure? And they ruined Tiger Woods' his career. Yes, it took him 11 years to come along and win another major at Augusta, which we were all so thrilled and the whole world was absolutely excited about him doing it. But he should have been winning majors in those 11 years every year. Think about it. He's won. 15 majors, has he? 15 majors. If he'd won one major in those 11 years, he would have won 26 majors. And really, that's what it should have been. But, you know, if... And he made the wrong decision, unfortunately. So what amazes me, if I want to know about business, I go to a man who's been successful in business. If I go to a doctor, I want to go to the best doctor. If I want to know about a golf swing, Man, I go to some player that could really play, had practiced hard, and did well under pressure, and won major championships. It's funny, they go to coaches today. Now, these coaches, I'm a big admirer of these coaches. They're good coaches for teaching members and young golfers who are coming up. But, man, you've got to have a special knowledge to teach somebody like Tiger Woods. If Tiger Woods had come to me after winning 15 majors, I would have said, Tiger, get in your car and go back home. The only thing I'd like to discuss with you, how are you thinking? What are you eating? You know, uh, what are you thinking about coming down the line? Are you working out? Things that he did. You see, superstars, and everybody uses the word superstar in all sports too lightly. To me, you've got to win six majors to be a superstar. Superstar is a big word. Don't mix up a superstar with a star. And don't mix up superstar with a great player. Superstar is a, in a rank of his own. There have only been about 15 superstars in the history of golf. And these guys had a different mind. I wouldn't have even mentioned a single thing to Tiger. I wouldn't have said a single thing to him about the theory of the game. It would have been on the, the 
the, 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 the side things like eating and thinking and sleeping and being positive and being happy and being laughing, all things enhance his career. Nothing would I've told him about his strength. So, Mr. Player, let's take that a step forward, talking about superstars, particularly in the, in the game of golf. When I look back at your record and Mr. Nicholas's record and Mr. Palmer's record, I mean, Mr. Palmer was fantastic from 1958 to 1964. That was his heyday. And in the grand scheme of things, though, it was only six years. He was certainly a great ambassador to the game off the course, and people loved him and, and, and the swagger and all of that. But you're winning tournaments and major tournaments over a 20-year period of time on the regular tour, and then obviously go on on the Champions Tour. Mr. Nicholas wins majors over a 26-year period of time. Do people fail to consider your longevity versus how brief Mr. Palmer's reign sort of was when they look back and they are considering who the greatest players in the game were? You're the first person that I've spoken to that has the knowledge of that. Arnold Palmer was my dear, dear friend. I loved him and adored him. He was the most charismatic golfer, he and Tiger, to ever play the game. But longevity, man, longevity is, when you're judging players, that's such an important thing. Nicholas won majors, I think, for 25 or 26 years. I won for 20. Arnold won for six. Because he was so charismatic and we all loved him so much, we thought that he won for 20 and I won for six. And that's understandable, Chris. That's very, you must understand, that's very understandable when you're as charismatic as Arnold Palmer was. But do you know, at my age now, without playing my own trumpet, I mean, I'm shooting par. I've beaten my age over 3,000 times in a row. Nicholas, when he plays now, he can't, he can't break 90. Arnold Palmer couldn't, at my age, couldn't break 95, and I'm shooting par because I exercise. And I ate properly, and I went and prepared myself better than any golfer that's ever lived. And so there's a reason. And there are many things to prepare yourself with. There are at least 20 things. And we don't have enough time on your show to discuss those 20 things. But that's how it is. And so longevity, that's why I thought Sam Sneed was, was debatably the best striker of a ball that ever lived, Ben Hogan. The most perfect swing, Ben Hogan. The most knowledgeable man in golf. He knew the swing from A to Z. I've never met anybody in my 70 years that knew the swing from A to Z. I met a lot that knew it from A to Y. Sam Sneed, debatably the best player that ever lived, had longevity, was the greatest athlete golf ever had. Bobby Jones conceivably was the best golfer that ever lived. He played golf with a walking stick as a shaft. He played with a ball that went 80 yards less. They never changed the pins every day on green. They left the same pins there for the whole tournament. They raked the bunker with their feet. He traveled everywhere by car. There were big spike marks on the green. You didn't have mowers to cut the green short and properly. You didn't have fairways. I could go on and on. So, but nobody ever even thinks of Bobby Jones. He certainly had probably as great a golf swing of any man that ever lived. Think about that junk that he played golf with. We played golf with junk. You can't make a comparison between Tiger Woods and Jack Nicholas. I mean, it's, it's, it's just not possible. It's comparing apples with bananas. You've got to compare people with the same equipment and the same time. Tiger Woods 
play golf with no spikes, no spike marks on the green. With a driver that hits the ball so straight. I mean, here at, uh, I'm 85. If I miss one fairway a day, I played in a 30 mile an hour wind yesterday, missed one fairway. You couldn't do that with, with the old wooden head. People are so naive when they give opinions on golf. They haven't had the experience. And my advice to young pros, my advice to young pros, when you're going to be going to having a coach, go to somebody who could really play well and played under pressure. That's the big thing to build a string that's going to work under pressure. And you know, the most irritating thing, if I could think of the most irritating thing today in golf, is when I hear a young pro say, he's working on the modern day swing. Do you know, Chris, you can go back to 120 years ago and they were working on the same things they're working on today. 120 <laughs> right. years. There is nothing. I'm dying to hear of one new in the game. There's nothing new. Nothing. They tried the <laughs> long putter. They tried the claw. They tried the cross-handed. They tried this. They tried that. They tried an upright swing. They tried a flat swing. They tried this. They tried everything 120 years ago. They didn't have the equipment. They were able to do it, but they had their ideas. Now, you can, you can have an idea, but if you don't have the equipment, you can't quite achieve it. Mr. Playa, you're talking about all the greats of the game, and I, I, I was curious to get your thoughts. I mean, I've heard you say many times Bobby Locke is the greatest putter who ever lived, but his putting stroke was very unique. He would line the ball up on the toe of the putter, then cut across it, and still hold the putt. Were you able to learn anything about putting from him, or was he so unconventional that uh, when you watched him putt, you could just marvel at what he was able to do? You see, I played with a young pro yesterday, very good singer. I said, have you ever heard of Bobby Locke? He says, never. I said, well, yes, man, you're a pro. Four British Open. He won seven out of 11 tournaments in America. He was the best putter that ever lived because I'm, Tiger Woods is the best modern-day putter. But Bobby Locke putted on greens with spike marks. No mowers to cut the greens like they have today. He never played on a green that we play on today at a normal country club in his life. Think about that, Chris, in his life. What he would have done, and I hear them on some of these networks when a, a young player's, a player's playing and they say, oh, he hit a bad putter, he jabbed it. Well, the best putters of my time jabbed the ball. Bobby Locke, Doug Ford, Arnold Palmer, etc. It's Billy Casper, all these players. And they putted just as well as anybody puts today. Bob Charles from New Zealand was phenomenal. Doug Ford, Jack Nicholas, all not good putters, phenomenal on crappy greens. I don't know what will happen if you go to these greens today. It's very interesting. And another interesting thing, a young player who plays the tour said to me in South Africa in December, he said, you know, when you and Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas and Lee Trevino and Tom Watson won all your tournaments, there were only 30 players that could win. We got 80 players that can win today. I said, is that so? So I came back during COVID and I sat down and I went through it and studied it. When we played the tour, there were 59 major champions that had played the tour. They're not 59 major champions playing the tour today. Yes, they are very good. Nobody admires the young players of the ability today more than I do, but they're not 59. 
And we must remember, whatever era you came up on, was very, very difficult to win. I tell young players when I talk, I say, look, go to Augusta this year. And in the clubhouse, they got a picture. I think, I think it was 19, oh, I don't know, it was 100 years ago. Players in that picture, Ben Hogan, Sam Sneed, Bobby Locke, Byron Nelson. You can go to Lloyd Mangrum. You can go down the list, Henry Cotton from England. You can go down the list and see all these great players. But nobody realizes how good golf has been for how long. It's amazing. I'd love to have seen the golfers in our time have the conditions that they play in today. I said to my grandson the other day, we were watching the tournament at Rivera. I said, James, have a look what 30th place won. $32,000. In 1961, I was leading money winner. 29 tournaments. 69 average. 64000 for the year. And yet wow. a guy finishing 30th made 32000 But that's great. We, I'm happy to see these young guys, you know, make the kind of money they do. But it certainly creates a lot more, in, uh, you know, incentive when you've got a million dollar first price. We never even played the tour for a million dollars. I remember the first man to ever win a hundred thousand in one year. A hundred thousand was Arnold Palmer. We thought he was a millionaire. But this is great because this is the improvement in golf. But what we've got to watch out for is the, what is going to be happening with distance. I mean, the Chevro, I really admire this guy. He's a gentleman. And a lot of the networks are saying, oh, here comes the coop. Here comes the scientist. Well, the guys who are saying that, they're the kooks now because he proved them wrong. And let me tell you something. You see how far he hits the ball. We ain't seen nothing yet. You're going to see guys in X amount of years come out here. They're going to carry the ball past where he ends up. We ain't seen nothing yet. So they're going to have to. And they will definitely cut the ball back. If you go to the Open Championship at St. Andrews soon, I don't know if it's next year or the following year, like a guy like the Sherbrooke can drive nine greens. Where are we going? Where are we going? I mean, I was delighted to see that baseball just cut the ball back a bit. They're smart. They are smart. We need leaders in the game, and the USGA and the RNA and the PGA, they've got to have vision. And they do have vision, and they're great leaders. But they've got to wake up about this golf ball because they're going to make golf courses obsolete. And remember, this one network covering the tournament at, uh, at uh, the Arnold Palmer Golf Tournament, all they spoke about is the Shabro's long hitting. You know, he outdrove uh, Westwood by 90 yards every time. And yet, they stood on the last hole, and the Shabro was only one shot ahead of Westwood, and Westwood drove his ball into a divot and couldn't even shoot for the flag. And Westwood on a par five had a seven iron to the green, made five, and Deshabo won by one tournament. Do you know why? Not his long hitting. He's a phenomenal putter. If the, I said to these guys, I phoned the, the network and the guy on you, I said, why didn't you explain to the public about how many putts he's holding and what a phenomenal short game he's got? Yes, long hitting is nice. It's an asset. People love to see it, but it's not the reason you win golf tournaments. You win golf tournaments, Chris, by having a great mind 
And above all, a great putter. Remember, a one-inch putt is equivalent to DeChambeau's 450-yard drive. Mr. Player, let's let's continue on the on the thought of putting. And, and one thing I bet our listeners don't remember is back when you first started playing on tour, you didn't have to move your ball out of your opponent's line on the green, right? You could leave it there and make them go around or over. <laughs> That's what I used to play when I first started with stymies. Can you imagine the guy hits the ball up next to the flag and right on your line, and you got a two-foot putt and he's not allowed to have a market? <laughs> and the other thing is that a lot of these young pros don't realize. When you hit a ball to the green and it buried on the green, you had to play it. You couldn't take it out. Never mind, never mind fix a ball mark. Never mind knock down a spike mark. You couldn't, you had to, and my brother-in-law, Bobby Verway, was the reason they changed that rule. He was playing at, uh, in the British Open at Birkdale. And he hit his third shot, a, a par four, a long par four, 10 foot from the hole. And the ball buried in the green. So he called for a ruling. And the RNA guy came out and said, you've got to play it, old chap. So he took out his sandwich, two inches <laughs> behind, took a big swing, a divot, a big dirty divot came out. The ball came out at 100 miles an hour, hit the flag and went in the hole. <laughs> 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 and they changed that rule very quickly. <laughs> so, you know, you've seen the, the leaders have made some wonderful changes like uh, touching the sand when you go back on a bunker shot. That's not a two-shot advantage. Now it's a one-shot penalty. I'd like to see them, the big, the worst rule they made is leaving the pin, leaving the flag in the hole. Because now what happens, people putt with the flag in the hole. They put their hand in the hole. There's no room to get their hand in, particularly these big guys with big hands. And they take the ball out and they raise the cup up. Everywhere you play now, you see the cups raised. And that keeps the ball out of the hole time and time again. Yesterday we played, this guy's ball rolled up to the cup, was going in the hole, and rolled back. I'd never seen that in my, my 70 years of playing golf. So, I mean, that's a rule they've got to change. And another one is out of bounds. Out of bounds is a lateral hazard. You and I play. We get on the tee. I hit the ball out of bounds. It hits a tree. I hit a nice drive, but it hits a branch and goes out of bounds. You whiff the ball. You play two. I've got to play three. And yet I hit a good drive and you whiffed it. So out of bounds right. should be lateral. It saves a lot of time going up there and suddenly realizing you're out of bounds. So that's the rule they've got to change. And they've got to change this. Get You've got to take the pin, the flag out of the hole. It doesn't save any time. One guy wants it in, one guy wants it out. By that time, you wasted more time than just taking it out. Mr. Player, I want to get a few Masters memories from your victories. And when I look back at 1974 and your win there, you talked about how people were saying even then that long hitters would dominate at Augusta National. But you said great iron play is what makes the difference there. Talk about that and if that still holds true today. Yes. I would change my idea on that. Obviously, great iron player. This is where Tiger Woods was so great. You see, you can't explain when you say players have it. There are only about 15 players in my lifetime that I've seen that have it. What is it? I don't know. No analysis knows. No psychiatrist knows. Nobody knows. It's a divine gift of some kind. Take Tiger Woods, for example. 
He always hits his shot pin high to the green. He's got something in his mind and his brain that sees the shot, the right club, under circumstances. I play with guys where he says, oh, that was a great shot. And they're 30 foot past the flag, 30 foot short of hope. Tiger put it pin high, pin high, pin high. That's a gift. So, yes, I am play. But the big thing is putting. The mind, the mind, can I explain that thing in the mind called it? No. The mind and putting. You putt well. I played with this young pro yesterday. It's a lousy drive in the bush. Chops it out. Chips it up 30 foot from the hole. Knocks it in. You should have seen the smile he had. He couldn't wait to get to the next tee. He felt like Tarzan. Now, if he'd missed that putt, he would have walked to the tee a little bit dejected, not with the same optimism and enthusiasm that he did having held that putt. No, there's no question in this. I've never been more sure of anything in my life. Look at Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods was not a great driver of the ball, the greatest putter on the tour of his time here. And the same with Mickelson, a terrible driver of the ball, but a phenomenal putter. And these guys were number one and number two, hitting bad drives. If you putt well, you perform miracles. Tiger Woods played in Hawaii, and on the television they said he hit two fairways that day and shot 63. That is talent. That is talent. I admire that. Champion, superstars can play badly and score 69. So let's take that a step further because Tom Weiskopf finished runner-up at the Masters four times. He had a birdie putt on 18, two groups in front of you in 74 and lipped out. Yeah. Then he had an even shorter birdie putt in 75 with, that could have forced a playoff with Nicholas and he missed that one. So it, he seemed like a guy who believed in his mind that it, it wasn't going to work out for him and it never did. Am I misreading him? No, you're not misreading him. And I, Tom and I are very good friends. And I always said to Tom, I said, Tom, if you had a mind like Jack Nicklaus or some of these uh, superstars, you would have won. He, he would have won seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven majors. He actually was a better golfer than Jack Nicklaus uh, in golf. No question about it. But he, I don't know what it was. Either he didn't believe in himself. Or, he didn't have it. He was some kind of golfer, and it's a tragedy, really, in his career that he only won one major championship on this tour. And not on this tour, he won, it on the, he won the British Open, which is still, I think, the hardest tournament to win. The guy was so talented, and but you see this, I see this in all walks of life. You know, and Tom Weisskopf used to say, I hate golf. Can you imagine? he say, I hate golf. But that's his opinion. We got to have respect for for that. I love the guy, and unfortunately, he's got cancer at the moment, which is so oh. sad. But <clears throat> but this guy, boy, could he play golf? But you see that in every walk of life, you know. I don't know. It's I've seen it at my eighty-five years. People with great talent. Talent is not the answer. I think perseverance is more important than talent. Mr. Player, just a couple more before I let you go. And and uh, speaking of having the it factor, on, on your way to the green jacket in 74, you hit a shot on, into the 17th green that ended up just inches from the hole. And, and as I rewatched some of the highlights, you hit the shot, stamped down your divot, 
walked over, laid your club down against your golf bag, and then the ball landed. And it's like you knew it the moment you hit it that that was going to be right by the hole. Is that the case? Well, I arrived there, and my African-American caddy says to me, he says, hey, listen here, Gary, I don't have a roof on my house, man. I need a roof. I got a lot of children. I said, Eddie, we're going to get you a roof this week, my man. And I'll never forget that shot. I mean, uh, I beat Weisskopf, funny enough, and uh, and uh, Dave Stockton. And I came to that hole with a one-shot lead, and I took that nine-iron, and as I hit it, I went, if you look at the film, I looked at it yesterday, funny enough, I took my, my club, I went and threw it on the golf bag, just let it drop on the golf bag, looked up, and it was six inches from the hole. And I said to him, and the ball was in the air, I said, Eddie, we're not going to need a putter here. We're not going to need a putter. And, uh, I mean, uh, so that is a great moment. And so I did the same thing virtually in the PGA at Oakland Hills, that wonderful golf course over the willow trees. And there were five of us within one shot. And out of the rough, I hit the shot out of the wet rough and finished three foot from the hole to go on to win the PGA. The saddest moment for me in my golf career is that I go down in the record books as having won nine majors. I know I won 10 because when I played at Dayton, Ohio in 1969, uh, people were demonstrating against me because I was from apartheid South Africa and they were demonstrating against me to get to the South African government because they could get publicity. And they threw telephone books in my back, on my back swing, ice in my eyes, charged me on the green, threw balls between my legs, screamed when I had a putt and things like that, and I lost by one shot. I mean, I'll never forget that as long as I live. That was a a tough time, but I was never bitter, never bitter about anything like that. I said it's part of life. It's part of adversity. You have no hatred in your heart, no revenge. And basically, this is what Dr. Martin Luther King, who I loved, and Nelson Mandela, who I love, and Mahatma Gandhi, who I love, they had no hatred, no revenge. They loved people. They said love over kills hatred. It kills hatred. And this is a lesson that right now America's got to learn. The greatest country in the world, there's too much hatred. If you say you're a Trump yeah. fan, they want to buy you. If you say you're a Biden fan, they, they call you a dirty liberal. We mustn't be like that. If somebody tells me they're a Biden fan or a Trump fan, I have respect. I listen to it. Whoever your president is, I always had respect. I didn't always like the principles of some of the presidents of America, but I had the utmost respect for them. And this is something America's got to realize. You've got enemies that want to destroy this country, and they're busy working on how to destroy this country. And you better stand together. Unity is strength. You better stand together and all work together and build this great country because there's nothing like this country. And if you ever think there is, take a week off and go and some, visit some of those countries. Mr. Player, one more before I let you go. And let's, let's talk about 1978 and not just the, the Masters victory because I'm, I'm sure because you became the oldest Masters champion at 42 years, five months and nine days old that year. You would go on to win the money tournament of champions the week after for the Masters. And then the week after that, you went on and won the Houston. You won three in a row. Talk about that run. Well, I was seven behind 
going into Augusta behind Tom Watson. And my son Wayne said, Dad, if you putt well today, you can shoot 65 and win. I shot 64 with a bogey and won. The next week, I went down to the Tournament of Champions, seven behind Ballesteros. Final round, windy and rainy, shot 65 and won that. The next week, I was uh, six behind Andy Bean at Houston, shot 64 and went on to win there. In the following tournament, I lost by one. So that was a, a, a great run uh, for me at that time. Great run. I mean, uh, just uh, I sit, sit back and say, how did I do it? But let me say, in uh, uh, regards to the tournament, I won the Grand Slam at 29. And I said to my wife, who is a wonderful golfer, nobody will ever beat that. Nicholas comes along, 26, wins the Grand Slam. And now here, Chris, is the greatest achievement of any sportsman or sportswoman in the history of sports. Tiger Woods comes along and wins the Grand Slam at 24. There's so many players that have never even played in a major at 24. I mean, that's just, that's beyond one thinking to win the Grand Slam at 24. That's something... I don't know whether we'll ever see that again in our lives. Mr. Player, before I let you go, and I've told you this a couple of times before, but I don't—I know you get interviewed thousands of times a year, but I, I want you to know your voice. It's the voice of Gary Player that, that is in my conscience. Every time I want to go eat something that I shouldn't eat, ice cream, things of that nature, I hear Gary Player's voice in my head saying, come on, man, that's poison. Put that down and go get something else. I want you to know, you, well, you live in my conscience. It's your voice. Well, Chris, that's important because in this great country, never mind COVID, never mind cancer, never mind heart attack, the greatest destruction of Americans and South Africans and people in the world today is obesity. Obesity makes it easier to get COVID. It makes it easier to get cancer and all these diseases. We've got to teach the children in school and the parents have got to teach their children to eat more green vegetables and salads and fruit and stay away from the crap because of all the things that matter. And the two most important things are your faith and your health. But America and the world don't worry about health. There are a few people, small percentages that exercise, Small percentage, very small. And when they start, they after one year, they don't continue. People, the best investment in your life is your health, and people don't worry about it. It's quite sad. Mr. Player, let our listeners know you're doing your own podcast now. I see that's coming up next week. Talk about that. Yes, uh, you know, a lot of people like me to get on that podcast and talk about the tournament, having, you know, played in Augusta 52 times and, you know, the experience I've had there. So it's, I, you know, I love people. I love to talk to you today and discuss things because the average person today, they'll hear us talk about things that they're not aware of. And I just love that. I love people and uh, I love golf. I, I never get enough of it. I still exercise like crazy at 85. I sleep well. I'm happy. I laugh a lot. That's what you got to do has the endorphins that are youthful cells. And we're not laughing enough. I'm talking South African accent and American now. We're not laughing enough in our lives. 
There's too much hatred going on. We've got to laugh more and have more love. There's Martin Luther King and Mandela and Mahatma Gandhi who went through hell in their lives. Let's learn from them, not the militants. Well, Mr. Player, I can't thank you enough for being generous with your time today and, and for joining me again this year. It's always such a huge thrill for me to get to spend some time with you. I, uh, I hope we get the privilege of doing it again real soon. All right, Chris, that was very nice, my friend. I enjoyed that. Me too. Thank you so much, Mr. Player. Best of health to you and, and to your wife. We're, we're thinking about her, and, and uh, hopefully we get the opportunity to catch up with you again soon. Bless you and bless America. Take care. Take care, Mr. Player. Thank you. That was the great Gary Player. So many great stories and insights from Mr. Player. I always cherish the time with him. Eight years in a row now, and every single time it's a thrill and so much when he talks about laughter, right? We do need that, folks. we got to come together as, as a country, and we need to laugh more and hate less. So hopefully laugh a lot and hate none. So anyway, su- such a great time with Mr. Player. 85 years young, and I expect to be having these conversations with him for a long time into the future. Folks, check out the show online. Again, nextonthetea.net is uh, the website. On there, you'll be able to stay up to date with what uh, my guest schedule looks like. You can stream the show on just about every major podcasting network. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Podbean, Player.fm. We're all over the net. Type Next on the T in the search bar on your favorite podcasting site. We're probably on there. Folks, thank you so much for tuning in and taking uh, the journey with me with Mr. Flair tonight. Until next time, hit him straight, my friends.